Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 4, 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Is it on? Hello. There we go. I'm not going to start over. Um, so relax. We're not going to do that whole passage, but I do want you to notice that last verse, Jesus makes this major claim that I am the Messiah. So we go in this passage from who are you that the woman asked to I am he, the Messiah. And if we read further in the passage, we would see that the people of that village also say you are Christ, the Savior of the world. So remember a few weeks ago when um, uh, the pastor from um, Stonebridge was here and the the story of the storm on the lake, and we went from uh, don't you care 
to who is this, even the winds and the waves obey him. We're doing a similar thing today. I'm going to read a quote from C.S. Lewis. Hang in there. Listen to it. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking now of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or bad holidays or unsuccessful learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There, are some, there is something that we grasp at in the first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and the scenery may have been excellent. And chemistry might be a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. So we're talking this morning about a problem that you have, that I have, that all people have. And that problem is we want something that continually evades us. It's just beyond our grasp. We can't stop wanting it, and yet we can't, under our own devices and power, get it. C.S. Lewis and other places called it the inconsolable longing. Therefore, I've titled this sermon, Conversations Are Dangerous. Conversations Are Dangerous. And it's because they threaten to bring up our problem. Conversations, even even most ordinary conversations, they either arouse our longing for something that we want that evades us. Somebody says, well, what did you think marriage was going to be? Innocent type question, but it might bring up those longings. Or conversations expose how you can't quite get there. You seem frustrated with your career. What's up with that? Conversations uncover us. They open that raw longing inside of us. They expose, listen to this, they expose our limits on the one hand, both natural limits and our sin and brokenness, and they also expose our unlimited thirst. We're limited on the outside, but we're unlimited on the inside. Another way of saying that is you're bigger on the inside than you are on the outside. You want something that's bigger than you. Now, you intuitively know this when you get into conversations. You intuitively know that there's something here that's a little bit scary. So guys, for example, if your wife texts you during the middle of the day and says, when you get home, we need to talk. What do you think? Oh, gee, I can't wait. (laughs) This is going to be good. Or somebody in your family says, there's something that I need to tell you. You feel the anxiety or the uncertainty right away. Even the more generic, even in the greeting, did that cause any anxiety in you? 
What are people going to ask? Do I have anything on too? How are you can bring up a little bit of fear and anxiety. If someone even looks at you intently, your response is something like, what? So since conversations and interactions are dangerous because they might bring up this deep thing inside of us, we learn to defend ourselves from the vulnerability of exposure. We cover ourselves. And the covering also becomes in danger of being exposed. You learn this at a very young age. You learn how to handle social interactions in a way that um, you won't get embarrassed or get ashamed. And as long as everybody plays by the script, how are you? Fine, fine. How are you? Good, fine, good. Okay, good. As long as everybody plays by that script, we're okay. Anybody deviates just a little bit from that script, we get a little nervous. We don't know where it's going to go. Here's an example of something uh, of a guarded place for me uh, that happened in that room next door. Some of you might have been there. It was during the small group leaders meeting uh, for the church. The life group leaders got together, and we were talking about our life groups and what might uh, help and what's been beneficial and that sort of thing. So we were all sitting around and around behind tables um, I guess there was about 14 of us, something like that. And people were sharing what was helpful in their small group. And Jean, my wife, uh, added uh, what was helpful in our group. I didn't know she was going to say this. And she said, you know, one of the things that's helpful in our small group is Roger ask good questions. Uh, so she kept talking, and I said, so, Jean, tell us more about that. <laughs> and everybody did what you guys did, except for Jean. <laughs> she wrote me a note on the, on the material. Was that hard for you? <laughs> no, I said. So why did I make a joke? I spend about half my life fishing for compliments. And when I get one, I try to dilute it. I try to get away from it. Get itchy. You do that? Something I want, but it just makes me nervous because it might pull more out of me. So I go into my little strategy to mess with it, to dilute it, to get away from it, to manage the exposure. Now, there's other ways to do it besides telling a joke. You all have your ways of doing it. You might just look humble might take a sip of water. Uh, you might say something to her later on. Why'd you have to bring that up? I got embarrassed. Or I might say, you never told me that alone at home. All that kind of distances yourself from the, the danger that a conversation might uncover something you really want and also uncover the inaccessibility of it to you. We cover ourselves. So conversations are often dangerous unless you're conversing with Jesus, in which case conversations are deadly. Because people might trip over your limitedness and your ability and your unlimitedness and your thirst, but Jesus goes straight at it. He wants to talk about it. He wants to bring it up. And that's what happens in our 
passage today. We're going to look at a conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. It's a famous passage. Um, you can put the outline up there. Um, and we're going to look at how this woman deals with a conversation. So we already just did the intro, so check. We got that done. Uh, and we're going to talk about the, um, the outline is by what Jesus brings up. He says, give me a drink. If you knew, then you would ask. The water I give to you. And then <laughs> the last one there, that maybe, why is it hard to believe? Why is it hard to ask? Maybe just the second. That was not supposed to be in there. I, I didn't edit that out. So maybe I was just going to do the second. So as a memory device, I've numbered these numerically. And I started each point with a letter of the alphabet. So if later on you kind of can't remember, just remember that they're numerical and they start with a letter of the alphabet. Does that help? All right, that's a joke. All right. So let's start with Jesus' first encounter. There's a well, and it's Jacob's well. So Jacob lived many, many, many years before uh, Jesus, and he had dug a well there in this area. And Jesus was on a journey from the south. We're going to show a map in a few minutes. From the south of Israel to the north of Israel. And he passes by this well. And it says he's hot and he's tired. And it's about 12 o'clock noon. So Jesus stops. And this woman from Samaria walks up to the well with her water jar. And she's going to get water. And Jesus encounters her. And he says, give me a drink. Now that sounds ordinary. He's hot and tired. There's water there. Uh, give me a drink. But this conversation is already in unknown territory. Um, it's natural, but it's unnatural. And the woman responds with guardedness because of the unnaturalness of this situation, which we'll explain. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? So she pushes back. What are you doing? What are you, what are you, what are you thinking here? John puts in parentheses. I don't know if there's parentheses in, in the Aramaic language or whatever this is written in. But he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So there's a couple of uncertainties here. First, there's a Jew-Samaritan problem. And then there's a man-woman problem. Man doesn't usually speak to women, especially in private. Supposedly, apparently, Jesus and the woman were alone because the disciples had gone into town to buy food. Jesus is waiting by the well. She comes up. He speaks to her. He's broaching a couple of boundaries here. Now, the Jew-Samaritan thing, could you put that map up on the... On the so you can see that there's a region in the middle that's called Samaria. And Samaritans no longer exist. They've, they've sort of married out or died out. But what happened was in the Assyrian um, conquest of Israel, the Assyrians had a habit of deporting whole populations out of the area that they were in and importing other populations in. It was their way of eradicating the nations around them. But some, they left some Jews in Samaria. They took the others out, but they left some Jews there, and they brought other people in. And those other people in intermarried with the Samaritans. And so the Samaritans were uh, only half or part Jewish. And the Jews, when they came back to 
Israel, when they, they migrated back to Israel, they looked down on the Samaritans because they weren't all Jewish. And so there was a, there was a, a, a racial thing here as well as the man-woman thing, and Jesus broaches that. So she asked, why are you a Jew? Jesus was Jewish, and she was Jew-ish. Okay. I got that from Ben Jones. I'll have to. So there was a thing going on here that normally didn't happen. In fact, you see the little dotted line that goes around Samaria? Often Jews, when they were making this uh, travel, they would actually go around Samaria just so they wouldn't have any dealings with them. So this conversation is off to a scary, uncertain start between Jesus and this woman. And the woman is uncomfortable, uncertain, and she handles her discomfort with a way that she handles discomfort. Her story, her personality, her manner. She could have done other things to try to handle the discomfort. She could have tried to ignore Jesus, just go on about her business. She could have gotten the water and just kind of snuck away. Or maybe she could have given it to him as a people pleaser and let's just get this over with. But that's not what she did. She answers his request with a question. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? There's a, I read that. There's a little bit of challenge in there. There's a little bit of pushback. Now, the thing to notice here is that the woman is guarded. She recognizes something in the conversation that's uncomfortable, and she's guarded. Now, we need to have a caution here. We don't, be, we don't know her motives. We don't know her heart. We hardly know her culture. So we don't want to be too quick to criticize her. I certainly don't want to do that. I would rather spend the time and energy criticizing you and me. So here's a question. Do you find that, pre, that guardedness when somebody asks you a question? How are you? Fine. Why? You find that inside yourself? Somebody says, I think the speed limit here is 50. And you go, well, I'm just driving with traffic. Do you find that guardedness inside of you, that pre-guardedness. And I want you to um, think, maybe I have this internal radar for discomfort. And maybe, just maybe, that radar is trying to pick up not just, you know, how other people have hurt me in the past or criticized me in the past. Maybe that re radar predates that. Maybe I don't want to talk about things that are too deep or too vulnerable to me in any way. So that's one question I want to ask you. Do you have a strategy that handles discomfort like this woman did? In the next interchange, Jesus answered her. And he says something rather remarkable. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus doesn't lower the intensity. He actually raises it. You're wondering about me, but if you knew who I, the gift of God or the generosity of God, and you knew who I am, then you'd be asking for me, and I would give living water. Now, where is this conversation going? This woman maybe thought that that would end it. He'd say, okay, sorry. I apologize for my cultural insensitivity, and I promise to do better. Maybe that's what she thought was going to happen, but he didn't do that. He pushed in. She doesn't know where it's going. Now, at minimal... This is confusing to the woman. What is he talking about? What's he trying to do? He's wanting to give me something? What's that about? 
Now, we'll look at her response in a minute, but it would be wise to pause and look at the form of Jesus' response. I'm going to shorten it. Jesus said, if you knew, if you really knew, then you would ask, and I would give. If you knew, then you would ask, and I would give. Does Jesus really mean this? Is Jesus saying that the universe operates on a principle like this? If you knew who God is, if you knew who Jesus is, then you'd, you'd be in a position of wanting to ask. And, remarkably, God would give. Is God basically a giver like that? What if that's true? It's a major claim. It's hard for us to believe that God is generous, wholly generous, and it's hard to believe that Jesus is who he's claimed to be, and after that, it's really hard to ask. It's hard to ask anything because it puts us in a vulnerable direction. When I get lost in the car, I'm in a neighborhood and I can't find the house, I'm not sure what street I'm supposed to be on, I drive faster. I figure as long as I'm lost, I always, might as well make good time. But stop and ask directions? Oh, no. Can't do that. I'll find it eventually. I had a friend um, whose wife, the anniversary was coming up in about two or three weeks. And so she got him a present. She wrapped it in silver. And she put it on top of the cabinets in the kitchen. And whenever he would walk in the kitchen and she was in there, she would, she would glance up at the present. That was her way of not asking, right? It's her way of reminding. And we do things like that. We hint and we guilt and we mention and we joke, uh, but we have a hard time asking. But Jesus says, God is generous. That's who I am, too. That's why I came. If you would just ask, if you knew that, you would just ask, then I would give you living water. The woman's response. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. She still guarded You've got nothing. I've at least got a bucket. Actually, it was a jar, but I didn't have a water jar, so it's a bucket for today, okay? She said, I have a bucket, and you don't have one, so where are you going to get this to give to me? The well is deep. Now, Bailey and Emma, I'm going to have you guys illustrate how, long, how deep this well was. Thank you, guys. They are so happy to be doing this. So if you take that and walk all the way out, and you go with her, Emma, and hopefully this is going to work. The well is deep. The well, oh, that's a, uh, hold, on, hold on a second. This is a um, simple Simon under knot, in case anybody is wondering. <laughs> archaeologists have found, now you can go, keep going. They have found what they think is this well, and it still exists. It's under an Eastern Orthodox church um, in the basement, and they have uh, pictures of it, and they've actually measured how deep it was. Okay? Now, 
There you go. Thank you. Thank you, Hudson. So keep coming back. Come back all the way in. Now, this going to the well was a daily event for this woman. It was a matter of how she did life. She carried a jar out there, and she got her daily water for that, for that, um, for that day. And either I measured the rope wrong or I stepped it off wrong last week. <laughs> Keep walking right over there. Go under. Good job. Okay, that's good. Right there. So that's how deep the well was, 135 feet. And if you could imagine, this woman would go out there, lower this rope. How much does a gallon of water weigh? Anybody know? 8.33 pounds per gallon. Uh, so I don't know how many gallons this is, maybe one and a half, one. And she would carry that water back on her head. This is how she did life. You can drop that now, and you're, you're off the hook. Thanks. Good job there, Vanna. Yeah. So that was a daily part of life for them, was to do this. It was how she managed life. Now, you may think that this was technology for her. You may think that the, the most important piece of technology in your home is your laptop or your cell phone, but it's not. The most, most important piece of technology is a sink and a toilet. Let you go a week without a toilet, I bet you'd trade in that cell phone. Uh, and this was daily life with her. This is how she did life. And it's also, um, you have your own buckets. You have your way of doing life that you depend on. Um, and Good, I was hoping it would make a good noise like that. We lower our buckets into our careers and into our marriages and into our bank accounts, and we hope to pull up enough water to make life work. And Jesus is saying, I want to give you something different than the water. You, nothing wrong with this water, but I want to give you something uh, different. I want to give living water. What's he talking about? The woman doesn't ask. She just says, you don't have a bucket, and I've got a bucket. I said earlier that conversations with Jesus were dangerous or even deadly because he asked us to acknowledge our limited abilities to make that deep part of life work and our unlimited thirst. He asked us to acknowledge both. And that's what he's really doing here. Is this woman still thinking about physical water? Or is she just trying to pretend like He's not talking about something deeper because she doesn't want to talk about it. I, I don't know. Um, what about you? Second question for you today. Do you want living water? Do you remember those longings, those inconsolable longings that you had when you first heard about a foreign country or ran across an idea that was important to you or saw something of beauty? You ever seen something in that uh, stirs you and moves you, maybe a piece of music or uh, a landscape or an encounter, and you look at the person next to you and you just you can't quite describe what it is and they don't get it, but it's true inside of you. Do you want living water? You've got your bucket, your ways of finding life, but is it big enough and is your rope long enough to reach that living water that's for that unconsolable longing? Could you put up Jeremiah 2.13? My people, this is from Jeremiah, this is the Lord talking through the prophet Jeremiah. 
He says, my people have committed two evils or two sins. What does that say? Evils, two, two evils or two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've hewn for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, you know what a cistern is? A lot of people think it's the female equivalent of brethren, but that's not true. It's a hole in the ground. It's not, a, it's not a well. It's a hole shaped sort of like a pear, and it's lined with um, um, waterproof material, clay or something like that, and they would collect rainwater in it in this arid uh, location in the world, and they would collect water in it, and then they would get water back out of it. So what God is saying here is, you've forsaken the fountain of living waters, and you've dug for yourselves these containers that are broken and don't even hold any water. That's idolatry. You've gotten buckets trying to get something of, of eternal life, and it's not working for you. You've got broken cisterns. Your bucket's got a hole in it. Your rope is not long enough. So what are your broken cisterns? Jesus points out here that we have this great thirst and we end up, and this is the gospel, we end up forsaking the source of living water but we still look for it. We can't help ourselves. We do it on our own but it's wrong and not only wrong, it's foolish, it doesn't work, it's inadequate, it's broken. You cannot get the spiritual water in a physical bucket. Next interaction, Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. It's quite a claim. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Those are profound and beautiful words. That whole idea that inside of us God designed, created, put a portal that reaches heaven, that if we are connected to God, uh, brings a river of grace into our lives, and it wells up like a spring all the way to eternal life. Jesus keeps inviting. He doesn't take no for an answer. He doesn't take her uh, talking about the bucket. He keeps inviting this water is good, but you'll be thirsty again. My living water, you'll never thirst again. It becomes a spring inside of you, welling up eternal life. So Jesus is inviting this woman to see her limits and the limits of what she's doing and how she's been living, that she can't get the living water that she craves all the way back from creation. Jesus is inviting her to see her and your unlimited desire for something eternal, perpetual, and internal. So the woman says, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. All right, now, is she opening up there? Or is she still a little guarded? 
I can't really tell. Is she still thinking physical water? So Jesus does something more. He does a diagnostic question with her, and it's really provocative. Jesus says to her in verse 16, Go call your husband and come back here. Now we're getting personal. He changes all from this water talk to go get your husband. And the woman answered him in what we would call a confession. She answers with the truth. No fluff, not a bunch of other um, um, hand-waving or fog. She says, answered him, and she said, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband, so that would be the sixth man. What you said is quite true. Now the woman looks at him and says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. (laughs) Um, How did Jesus know this? Um, He knew a lot of things. Um, He knew this about her, and he's asking her, really about her other buckets, I think. Go get your other buckets and bring them here. In fact, you've had five buckets and now six. It's not working for you. The thing you want is not going to be found in marriage. As good as marriage is, it's not going to be found there. It's very provocative, and she responds, "Um, I don't have a husband. So if Jesus said to you, okay, um, you're sitting here at church, maybe some of these words of Jesus are getting to you, and you're wondering or trying to remember your desire for living water, your desire for something fresh springing up, eternal forever inside of you. And Jesus' next question might be, why don't you go get your bucket? Let's see if you really mean this. Go get your bucket and bring it back. And you say, I have no bucket. And Jesus said, actually, you've got five buckets. You've got ten buckets. You've got all kinds of ways that you try to make life. Roger, you joke when you get uncomfortable. That's your bucket. How's that working for you? You lose the compliment. You look bad. You get a note that's exposing from your wife. Then you have to tell about it in front of the whole church. How's that working for you? We all got our ways. We're all dipping our lives into what may be legitimate wells, our career, um, our ministry, our learning, our relationships, and we get something out of that, but it's not that deep thing that's meant to only come from God. How's that working for you? Jesus said, you're right, I have no husband for you had five. What's going on? She's been married five times. We don't know why. We don't know if she's a victim of five men or if she travels around. We don't know any of that story. But we do know this is painful and hard and ultimately empty for the woman. So you want to start, you want the living water, Jesus says to her. You have to ask and do the opposite of Jeremiah 13. You have to stop believing in your broken cisterns, your empty buckets or your broken buckets, and you have to return to the fountain of living water. He's inviting her to him. To come to the fountain, you have to admit your limited, broken buckets and acknowledge who the fountain of water is. Now, after this scene, um, 
The woman goes back and tells the village, villagers what's happened to her. This man told me everything that I've ever done. And they come out and they start asking him questions. Jesus, who was originally passing through, stays there two days with these Samaritans talking about who he is, the generosity of God, and what living water is. And they end up, many of them, believing in him. That's what happened with the story. So what's going to happen with us? What's going to happen with us? Um, if this passage has stirred any of that thirst inside of you, if it's help, helped you remember a thirst that you used to have, um, then I've got an application for you. It's a practical application, but it's, but it's elusive. There's four, four parts to it. Review your conversations. Okay, it's a good place to start because they happen every day. The deep conversations and the not-so-deep conversations. And non-judgmentally, don't be cracking on yourself here, look at your defensiveness. Am I guarded, like Roger said? Do I kind of get defensive over the simplest things? Do I get nervous and itchy thinking that something's going to be brought up um, that causes me vulnerability? Look for your guardedness. This will help you see your fear. And then secondly, ask the question, well, why am I so guarded? What is it that I'm afraid of? And I would like to suggest to you that you might be afraid of the person, that you might be afraid they're going to be critical or hurtful to you because they might be. But I'm asking you to ask the deeper question. Maybe what I'm really scared about is that I'll never get filled. And if we start talking about what I want in life and what life is like, it may bring that up, and I don't want to think about it. And secondly, maybe I'm scared that my thirst is just too much. What we tend to do with this problem that we have, we have a thirst that's in, in, um, inaccessible to us. We either try to pretend like we're not thirsty, or we redouble our efforts to dip water out of things that can't. We squeeze water out of our careers or our families or something. Review your conversations. Ask, why am I so guarded? What am I afraid of? And then let yourself, this is my, your favorite one, let yourself feel the fear. And that, you do that probably all the time. Actually invite the fear to come a little closer. Let yourself notice it. This is what happens in the counseling room. Somebody will say something vulnerable, and often the next thing I'll ask is, tell me what it was like for you to do that. The content's important, but it's also important about how you interact with it. And people say, well, it makes me nervous. I'm scared. I want to stop crying. I want to move on. But let yourself feel it. And if you feel the fear, is my thirst too much? Is there really water out there? If you let yourself feel it, maybe then you'll ask. And Jesus claims that reality, that God-made reality is designed so that when you trust and ask, God gives. God gives an eternal, eternal well of water springing up inside of you that will last forever and ever. That's worth thinking about. That's worth uh, experiencing a little fear to find out. Amen. Worship team, watch out for the bucket.